0: Thank you, Jonathan and musicians. It's good to see Ricky Oxford here with us this morning, and he was telling me his family is over in the sanctuary, so we want to welcome them with us uh, also. And it's good to see each of you. I know we've probably got a number of our folks traveling this weekend, being Labor Day weekend and cheap gas prices, so many are probably on the road. But uh, if they're watching online, we certainly want to welcome them Uh, as well. You know we've been uh, going through Philippians so far talking about joy and contentment. We'll continue that theme this morning and uh, this morning he's really going to talk about selfless living where we each carry our cross and there's a great deal of joy in that surrendered Christian living and uh, Paul emphasizing to the philippians that that's where that's where contentment comes from not having one foot in the world and one foot in the church but being sold out to jesus and so i want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter make your life count would you stand with me for the reading of god's word please we'll be in uh the last paragraph in chapter one beginning there in verse 27 Father, we want to ask that uh, you would open our eyes and ears to what you would say to us today. As Jesus said in Revelation 2 and 3, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Speak to our hearts. And Lord, may we be challenged this morning, each of us, to know that our lives are to count for you regardless of what those around us may be doing. Lord, we know that peer pressure or what we see being done in society is never to gauge our commitment to you. Lord, help each of us To keep our eyes on you and fulfill the calling that you have to us for it's in Christ's name that we pray amen thank you you may be seated you know sometimes we're tempted to look around and base what we do on what others are doing sort of a crowd mentality Boy, we've been seeing a lot of that in society today, right? In different contexts, a crowd mentality. And sometimes, in the body of Christ, we are tempted to do something like that. There's a man in the Old Testament that I've got to confess. There's a lot about him that I do not understand. I'm speaking of Aaron, Moses' brother. You'll recall that he was appointed to be Moses' mouthpiece. And you remember the story. Moses did not feel adequate to go and speak to Pharaoh, and so God appointed Aaron to be Moses' spokesperson. Well, he stood before Pharaoh with Moses and called for the release of God's people, and yet once they got out into the wilderness and Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron went along with those around him. The crowd became impatient that Moses was tarrying for so long on the mountain. And they said, we need to serve those gods that we had in Egypt once again. Moses, make for us a god. And you remember Moses had them take off their jewelry and earrings and he melted those down and he formed the golden calf and he said, Behold your God, Israel. Aaron did. Yes. He said, Behold, what did I say? Moses. Moses. Aaron, thank you. Thank you. Somebody's listening. So Aaron said, Behold your God, Israel. And Moses came off the mountain and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And you remember what Aaron said? Well, I just threw all these earrings and so forth into the fire and boom, out came this golden calf. You know, it's like as long as Moses was around, Aaron was following the Lord with commitment, wholehearted commitment. But when Moses was gone, He wavered. Folks, as we come to our text this morning, we see that Paul does not want his presence to dictate whether the Philippians are faithful to Christ or not. Whether he is with them or not should not matter. He's calling for them to live with wholehearted Christian commitment Regardless of who's watching, because after all, God is watching. God is always watching. It's nice to have examples to follow, but we are called upon to make our lives count if nobody else is leading the charge. I'll go even further than that. If everybody around you in your context, whether at work or school is is living a pagan life and mocking your Christian faith, and nobody is standing with you. You need to stand for Christ regardless. Joy comes from a life that counts, a life that counts for Christ, and nobody can do that for you and me. Now, for those of you who love application, I've got some good news for you this last paragraph in Philippians chapter 1 is nothing but application, essentially. Because Paul's been writing about himself and his own experience and how that should be an encouragement to the Philippians, but now it's like he's gathering up everything that he said about himself and he's putting it in their lap now and he's saying, now it's your turn. It's your responsibility to live as I have shown you how to live. I want you to see, first of all, this morning that we are to live worthily of our Savior. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul begins here by simply saying only. I want you to understand something about the Greek language where it differs from English. One of the ways you could emphasize a thought in a sentence in the Greek language was to front load the sentence you would front load the sentence with whatever word whatever thought whatever phrase you really wanted to stick in their minds it doesn't always make for good english but it made for great greek paul is front loading this sentence he's saying only let your life be worthy Above all, Paul wanted their lives to reflect the reality of the gospel. Folks, isn't that always the main issue in the Christian life? Does my life reflect the reality of the gospel? Does my life reflect the thumbprints of the Lord Jesus all over my life? and that he has wrought a change in me? Does my life reflect that, whatever I'm doing? That's what he's telling them. Now, they were a beloved congregation to the Apostle Paul. They weren't like the Corinthians. The Corinthians were Paul's problem child. They were jealous of one another. They were divided into their little personality groups. They tended to follow certain leaders in the church and feel as though one leader was maybe better than another. And they boasted of certain gifts. that the, If you have this gift, you're more needed in the body than other gifts. And so at Corinth, Paul had to address a lot of different problems, a lot of issues. But that wasn't the case at Philippi. For the most part, the congregation at Philippians was a mature congregation, but this doesn't mean they were perfect. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to call out two ladies by name who are divided with one another, and their division is spilling over into the church, threatening the unity of the church. And so while they were on the right course for the most part, they weren't perfect. Well, Paul's appeal to them is that they would get to the point as a church family that they would be reflective of a uh, a work of God, the work of regeneration, that as a congregation they would be a mirror reflecting what Christ has done in and through them. And so he's admonishing them here that they would conduct their lives in a manner fitting of the gospel. And again, it doesn't come out in most English versions, but, but the word he uses, he uses a word here that talks about their citizenship. Citizenship. Uh, the king james i believe says let your conversation others say your conduct it's a word that literally refers to citizenship in ancient times citizens would give their allegiance to a city state they wanted to be good citizens that was important in ancient times you didn't want to bring a disgrace to your city Well, at Philippi, they had dual citizenship. They were located there in Macedonia, but Rome had conferred Roman citizenship upon them because in the past they had helped Rome in a time of war. And so Rome, trying to show its appreciation for the people of Philippi, conferred upon them... Roman citizenship now that was very important because Roman citizens had all kinds of rights and privileges that other citizens in other cities didn't have you remember in the book of Acts when Paul was arrested there at Philippi and he was beaten and flogged and thrown in prison the next day when the authorities heard that Paul was a Roman citizen They released him and they were scared because they had flogged a Roman citizen. And then when the Jews wanted to send Paul back for trial in Jerusalem and kill him, he appealed his case to Caesar. He had the right to do that. As a Roman citizen. My point is that the Philippians would have been very proud of their Roman citizenship. Well, by using that word here, Paul is making a veiled allusion to the fact that they are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. Folks, let that be a reminder to us. I don't care what city you're from, where the Concord, Charlotte, Kannapolis, wherever, Harrisburg, first and foremost, you and I are to live with the, with the realization that our first allegiance is to God. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our first allegiance. And Paul is saying, I want you to live your lives worthy of that citizenship. Now, now think about that a moment. What if in the church today, as we lived our daily lives, we went about each and every day, and the first thought that concerned us was reflecting Christ's kingdom. You reckon that would change the way we live? and conduct our lives, and relate to people, I think it'd make all the difference in the world. The church, imperfect as we are, temporal as we are, nonetheless, we are the body of Christ in a dark and decaying world. In just a moment, Paul's going to describe exactly what he means about living worthy. He's going to offer Three suggestions. But before we look at that, I want you to see in other places in Paul's writings where he describes what it will look like if we are living as kingdom citizens. In Philippians 2.15, for example, he'll say to them that they are to live blameless and innocent lives, children of God without blemish in the midst of a Crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Boy, we need more of that today, don't we? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Colossians 1.10, he says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you'll do so more and more. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles around you who don't know God. So that's, that's four places in other letters. One of them, Philippians 2, same letter. But where Paul is saying what it's going to look like, what's, what it's going to look like when Christians are living worthy of the kingdom of God. And folks, when we live worthy, what does that communicate to a lost and a dying world? It communicates integrity. We all know what it looks like when when a leader does something wrong and the media makes a big deal out of that and says all Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. When we don't live as citizens of the kingdom of God, even though we're citizens here, when we don't live that way, what do we do? We bring dishonor on the name of the Lord and the watching world mocks us and makes fun of us. We need to live with spiritual integrity worthy of the gospel. Another interesting image that we get from Paul's words here, the phrase worthy of. Those words literally talk about of equal weight. Think in your mind of the ancient scales. You had the crossbar and the chains and a... A cup hanging from one side and then a cup hanging from the other side. It's like Paul is saying on one side, you have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and on the other side of the scale you have your life. Is there any kind of balance between the two? Does your life in any way measure up to what Jesus Christ has done for you? Want you to think with me for a moment about Shakespeare's plays having to do with Henry V. They start out with young Prince Henry as a vain and worthless young man who spent his time in drunkenness and carousing with old John Falstaff. But when Henry's father, the king, dies, Henry changes. He realizes his unworthiness and confesses to his dying father, You want it. That is the crown, you wore it, you kept it, and now you're giving it to me. Once they put the crown on Henry's head, he vowed to live a worthy life. And from then on, he became one of the most noble kings in England. He lived worthy of the title. Paul is saying to them, and through the power of the Spirit, And the word of God to you and me today, look at your life. Take an honest look at your life, brothers and sisters. Take an honest look at your life in light of Jesus Christ. Does your life reflect the work of grace He's done in you? Is it worthy? Does it measure up in any way to what He has done? You. now let's see the three phrases here how he breaks it down live live worthy he says first of all by standing firm in one spirit he says that in verse 27 he's telling them to steadfastly hold their ground regardless of opposition The word was used of a soldier who would defend his position at all costs. Figuratively, it it refers to holding fast to our Christian convictions. Folks, we are to stand firm for God and against Satan. Paul will tell them in chapter 4 to stand firm in the Lord. In Galatians, he tells them to stand firm in the freedom of grace and not be enslaved again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, he's telling the Galatians to stand firm in doctrine, in their Christian doctrine, and not to be moved. In Ephesians, he's going to tell them to stand strong against the evil one, against Satan. And not be moved. In other words, he he wants them to have some holy tenacity when it comes to standing firm for the sake of the gospel. Regardless of what opposition you might be up against right now, living your Christian faith, stand firm with some holy tenacity. He's telling them to have some backbone when it comes to their Christian faith and convictions. Have some backbone. Take a stand. Take a public stand. And don't give in. I think of the 104-year-old man who was being interviewed by the newspapers. They asked the man, how'd you do it? How'd you live so long? He said, well, I ate right. I got plenty of sleep. I didn't fool around, I didn't drink, didn't smoke. The reporter said, well, that sounds good, but I had an uncle who lived the same way, and he lived only to be 55 years of age. How do you explain that? And the 104-year-old said, well, he didn't keep it up long enough. (laughs) The failure in too many Christians is... We don't keep it up long enough. We're not tenacious enough. We give in too easily. We don't stand by our Christian convictions. We're to stand firm regardless of criticism. How do you handle criticism? How do you handle opposition? You've probably never heard of Charles Simeon. He was born, after all, 200 years ago. He was a student at Cambridge University in in England and he was studying for the ministry. On one day, he walked by the Holy Trinity Church at the heart of the campus there and he said, God, it would be my prayer that someday you would allow me to pastor this church in the heart of this university in this university town. Well, God gave him his wish. But he was so incredible incredibly opposed there it is kind of his life is kind of an example you you might want to be careful what you wish for and and this was a day when in the pews they had end caps with locking doors and and church members would get a key to their pew you know we talk about we have people who like to sit in their seat well they had their seats and they had a key to their seat and if you're going to sit in their pew they had to let you sit on their pew well, they, they so opposed Charles Simeon, all the church members just simply locked the pew so nobody could get a seat. And yet he kept preaching. And something happened one day, and there was a turn in that congregation. And then for the next 45 years, he had a phenomenally fruitful ministry there. What if, what if he wouldn't have had tenacity? What do you do with criticism? Do you give up too easily? How about when failure comes? Little boy out wanting to show his dad how good he could hit the ball. Would throw the ball up to himself, strike one. Dad felt kind of bad for him. Threw the ball up, strike two. Threw the ball up again, strike three. He turned to his dad. Dad, did you see that? Man, what a pitcher I am. What do you do when you experience failure? What about when disaster comes? What about setbacks? Paul wanted them to understand it's not going to be easy there at Philippi. I mean, look at his own life. After preaching the gospel there, Paul himself had been thrown in jail They had a tough environment, but they needed to stand fast. They needed to stand firm in one spirit. He also describes it by another phrase, living worthily by standing firm with one mind. He says we're to do this the faith of the gospel with one mind uh, striving side by side the the word means we're in this together it's a word that comes out of athletics when a team strives together good picture today is of a football team 11 men are trying to advance that ball down the field it's not just one man it's the team. One writer tells a story that some years back, Jimmy Durante was asked to be in a show for some World War II veterans. Well, Jimmy and his agent said he didn't really have time, but for, for veterans, he'd make time. He'd do a quick monologue, and then he would have to scoot out of there quickly. So they agreed. Well, he got up on stage being his typical self, funny, telling all his stories and his jokes. And then he kept going one after another after another. The crowd loved it. They were cheering and clapping. I mean, he just went on and on and on. And they asked him afterwards, they said, you were going to tell one story maybe and a joke and be whisked out of there. What happened? He said, did you not see those two veterans down on the front row? He said, no, what are you talking about? He said one of them had lost his right arm. The other one had lost his left arm. And they were sitting to where the alarms they had were on the outside of the two of them. And every time I'd tell a story or a joke, they they would be clapping. He said, when I saw that, I couldn't quit. two men acting as one there. We are to be standing firm with one mind, striving together side by side for the sake of the gospel. Folks, the gospel is worthy of your life and my life. The good news of Jesus Christ is worth anything you and I have to endure. Then a third phrase he uses here, live worthily by by standing firm with courageous resolve. He says in verse 28, not frightened in anything. The word he uses there was a word that would refer to spooking a horse. A horse can get suddenly spooked. Did you watch the horse race last night, any of you? Did you see that? You know, there's one horse at the last minute they had to scratch, didn't they? You remember what happened? He stood up in his stall. He was he got spooked. Something spooked one of the race horses last night. He stood up and fell backwards in his stall. They had to scratch it from the race. A horse can get spooked. Well, Paul's using that word, that image here. He didn't want the church to get spooked. He didn't want them to be taken by by surprise because of, Strong opposition to the sake of the gospel. It might be somebody at school who makes fun of us. It might be somebody at work who taunts us because we're a Christian, maybe even threatens your job. It might be a member of your own family who mocks you and belittles you because of your Christian faith. We all have, have adversaries, and so Paul is saying to the Philippians, you need to have courage, not fear. And notice what he goes on to say as we face our opponents and suffer. It's a sign to them. It's a sign to us. It's a sign to us. We belong to Christ. Christ said one of the hallmarks of his children is that we would suffer for him because the servant is not greater than the master. And it's a sign to our opponents that, that we have a fortitude that is greater than human fortitude alone. It ought to be a testimony to them. And so he uses these phrases to describe what he means when he says, it's your turn now to live worthy of the gospel. A second main point I want you to see this morning, though. Be willing to do your share of suffering for the gospel. In verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Nobody wants to suffer. Some people say, I didn't sign up for this. Well, yeah, actually you did. For some reason, Christians today have gotten the impression that it's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be comfortable. And yet the Bible tells us that suffering can actually be a gift of God. Now, there's kinds of sufferings that's not the gift of God. But the Bible says there is suffering that is the gift of God. There's suffering that is directly from the hands of God. Paul mentions here suffering for the sake of Christ. He mentions that not only is a gift from God, but, but an appointment. And he mentions here two things that God gives us. He says it's been appointed that we believe first and that we suffer second. Think of that. Salvation is a gift. It's not the work of man. It's a gift of God. When a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, they've received a gift from God. They didn't earn it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on to say, we've been appointed to suffer as well. That too is part of the design and purpose of God. Now folks, we don't want to hear that very much, do we? And yet, it is in those times of suffering that God teaches us so much. Somebody once wrote, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted, chattered all the way. But I was none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with suffering, and not a word, said she, but all the things I learned from her when suffering walked with me. Second Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory folks you and I can't live right side up in an upside down world and never have any conflict if your faith or my faith never cost us anything then we need to ask what kind of faith we've got Jesus said if any man wants to be my disciple he must deny himself pick up his cross and follow me." He told his disciples, his small band of disciples, he said, as you do that, you might even find your worst enemies are those in your own family, those closest to you. The Bible says to suffer for Christ is a gift and a privilege. The book of Acts says the apostles rejoiced that God had counted them worthy to suffer shame for his name. Folks, when we suffer, it only makes us long all the more for that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. The suffering is not without its purpose. It is a gift from God to be received with gratitude because of what God wants to do in your life in and through that suffering. Paul goes on in verse 30 here to say, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I have. In other words, it's not a strange thing to suffer. It is the the common experience of Christians down through the ages. Folks, we need to think about that today. Suffering is the common experience of the church down through the ages. When God's children suffer for the sake of the gospel, they do not do so without a keen awareness of the very presence of God. It's been granted to you for the sake of the gospel that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer. So you hear what Paul's telling them here? He's saying to the Philippians, it's your turn now seen my life you've seen my suffering you've seen my experience and God's work in me what you've seen in me it's your turn doesn't matter who's watching doesn't matter who's applauding if nobody's applauding you are to live worthy as a citizen of God's kingdom and you are to be ready to suffer. In fact, it's been given to you by God that you accept your share of suffering for the sake of the gospel. Make your life count for something. Make your life count for Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. If you're going through your life and you're living for yourself and you're living for the world, what are you going to have gained at the end of your life? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And yet, sadly, that's where most people are living today, for themselves and for the world. Can I say to you this morning what Paul is saying to the Philippians? Don't waste your life. You've only got this one life to live for Jesus Christ. Give it to Him wholeheartedly. Maybe you've gotten off course in these past months in your faith. Maybe maybe you're not out there living worthy for the gospel. You've, You've shrunk back. Think of the sacrifice Jesus made for you. Folks, we need to remember we don't belong to ourselves. We need to live in a manner worthy, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Can I ask you to think about that this week? Living your life worthy of the gospel of Christ what do you think about what's your mind dwell on how do you treat others how do you speak of them how about your actions your energy spent every day are you living worthily of the gospel Are you suffering any today? Is it because you're suffering at your own hands? Maybe your own bad choices? If if you're suffering for the sake of Christ, Scripture says, Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is great in heaven. Don't be discouraged. Stand firm. Father, we thank you for this very clarion call here at the end of Philippians 1. That we stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not spooked or alarmed by our opponents. Lord, give us strength to live that way. Lord, we grow complacent. We grow apathetic. Forgive us. Lord, help us to realize that we're even to do our share of suffering for the sake of the gospel. We live in a world that is against Christ. And if we follow Him wholeheartedly, the world's not going to like us. Lord, help each of us to be prepared for that this week. Lord, may it be that each of us, this week, regardless of who's watching, even if no one is watching, may we live faithfully as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, remind me that that is the first requirement of my Christian life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing together.